Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Praise the Lord. Well, if you would be turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, and while you guys are turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class, which was available just here in this back corner. You can meet your leaders uh, back in the room. They'll be available there for you. And uh, while they're making their way back there, everyone else, again, can be turning to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue to make our way uh, through this letter to the Hebrews. We're going to be finishing up chapter 6 this morning, verses 13 through 20, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Uh, Before I read our passage for us, I know many of you like to know what's coming up in terms of uh, what we'll be preaching on next. And we will be taking a break from Hebrews next next Sunday. And our mission statement is based on Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. So we're going to take time next week to look at that passage of Scripture and what the Lord has to say to us and hopefully see how it informs what we are to be about as a church. And so, again, we'll be taking a break from Hebrews next week. We'll be at the end of Colossians chapter 1. I just wanted to be sure everyone was aware of that. Well, let me read our passage for us, uh, Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. And then we'll take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just want to pause and ask for your help this morning. We never want to come before your word uh, uh, with any sense of arrogance or pride, thinking that in our own strength and our own wisdom, we could understand fully what you intend to communicate to us. And so let us, because of the, we ask for your help, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. You've sent your spirit to dwell in all who trust in him. And we are thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us this morning as we read the truth of your word and and proclaim the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would do exactly what you have already promised to us this morning, that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, changing us and conforming us more and more to the likeness of Jesus. 
Father, we, we need your help in this passage in particular. Father, I pray that it would accomplish uh, what you intend it to accomplish, which is that it would encourage us strongly, that it would motivate us, convince us to hold fast to Jesus and to not let go. And so, Father, I pray that you would use your word to accomplish that very thing within each of us this morning. I pray that you would help me and guide my words, that you would allow me to say only what is true of you and true of your word. And I pray that your people would be helped and that you would get the glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a brief reminder of some of the context of Hebrews, it seems as we've made our way through this letter that what's happening in the lives of the Hebrews to whom the author has written is that they are being tempted to walk away from Jesus. These were former Jews. They were uh, following Jesus, but times had gotten difficult. Persecution to some degree had risen up, even as we looked ahead a bit last week in Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that some who were close to them had been imprisoned and that the Hebrews who had gone to minister to those in prison had had all their property plundered as a result of even just visiting to encourage those who were in prison. There were serious consequences being piled on to what it meant to follow Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is concerned that at some point, could the Hebrews potentially just say, look, following Jesus isn't worth it anymore. Which is why throughout these first chapters, and we're going to see it continuing on through the end of the book, he is exalting Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is better than anything you could run back to in Judaism. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood. Something greater has arrived. Why would you turn away from him and run toward those things of which Jesus is greater? It's why he has been pleading with them time and again and saying to them, hold fast to the hope you have in him. Hold firm your original confidence to the very end. Over and over again, he's pleading with them to do this very thing. And we see it again this morning. You see there in the last half of verse 18 why he is saying what he is saying in this passage. And he says so that we will have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, in some ways, it seems that for this group of people, for these Hebrew believers, these Hebrew Christians, they were viewing the old ways of Judaism as a backup plan. Right? If things get too tough following Jesus... I can always just go back to that. And you see, the problem is when we have backup plans in our life, that's always an option in the back of our mind, right? But the problem when you have a backup plan is that you won't be holding fast to Jesus. You'll have a grip on Jesus and you're going to have some kind of grip on the other thing that's in the back of your mind that you think just maybe could be better than Jesus if things get tough. And as long as a couple of fingers are gripping onto that other thing, you're going to be continually tempted to go back to that other thing. It's what the Hebrews, the Hebrew believers here were being tempted to do. But the problem is Jesus is really honest with us. Jesus is really honest with us about what it means to follow him. 
right? Listen to some of the, I think what we could fairly call radical things that Jesus calls us to. Just three brief examples. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Or Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are staggering words. Now to be clear, he's using hate in a comparative way here, but he is doing so to be clear, clear and emphatic about what it means to follow Jesus. You follow him at all costs if you're going to be all in with Jesus. Or finally, Luke chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say well to those at my home, say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But you see, that's what these Hebrew believers were doing. They were looking back. Maybe we need to go back to how it was before the tough stuff started happening, before we started running after Jesus. But you see, this kind of radical call to follow Jesus demands that we ask and seek to answer a difficult question. Right? If we're going to leave everything behind, or if we're going to be like the Apostle Paul and count everything that was gained as rubbish, right? If we're going to leave it all behind and run after Jesus, if we're going to lose our life to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow him at all costs, then it brings up a serious question, which is this. How do we know he's going to come through? Right? That, that was the ultimate question these Hebrew believers seemed to have some level of uncertainty about. How do we know he's going to come through and be faithful to us in the end? You see, I think ultimately that's the question the author of this letter is seeking to answer for these Hebrew believers. Let me, the, the author is saying, let me convince you and show you and prove to you that Jesus is worthy to be followed. He's worthy of giving everything up. He's, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. He will come through for you in the end, even when the times get tough, even when the persecution comes, even when your uh, property is plundered, even when your friends are thrown in prison and when you might be thrown in prison, Jesus will still be faithful. How do we know, how can we be sure he will keep his promises? That's the question the author of Hebrews is answering in verses 13 through 20. 
So here are three answers that the author gives to that question. How do we know God will be faithful? Number one, he has a proven track record. He has a proven track record. Number two, he has provided every reason we need to trust him. He has provided every reason we need. And number three, because Jesus has already gone before us. Jesus has already gone before us. Proven track record. He's provided every reason we need to trust him. And Jesus has already gone before us. So let's just work our way through those one at a time. First of all, he has a proven track record. Look there with me at verses 13 through 15 again. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So here the author of Hebrews is simply giving an example of what he called us to do last week. So if you just look one verse earlier to, to, to what we talked about last week there in chapter 6 verse 12, the author of Hebrews said, so that you may not be sluggish and instead of being sluggish in your faith, instead of being lazy in your faith, this is what he called us to. There at the second half of verse 12. To be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're to be imitators of the faithful ones who have gone before us. And then he gives us Abraham as the example that we are to follow. And that, that connection is made clear for a few different reasons. First of all, there at the beginning of verse 13, he says, for or therefore, when God made a promise to Abraham, he's connecting verse 13 to verse 12. He's saying, look, here Abraham is an example. Furthermore, you see there in verse 15, it says, Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. What did verse 12 say? We are to imitate those who through faith and what? patience inherit the promise, which is exactly what the author is saying that Abraham did. But here, here's what's interesting. In verses 13 through 15, we don't learn a lot about Abraham. It doesn't say much about him other than the fact that he was patient and that he waited and that he obtained the promise. But what we are told is about the promises of God. That God made a promise to Abraham, right? And that when he made that promise, he swore by himself because there was no one greater by whom he could swear. And he, he made a promise and he swore to that promise and he said, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So, so what is the author of Hebrews getting at here? Because there doesn't seem to be any swearing to himself happening in verse 14. Well, we have to look back to the event in the Old Testament that happens in the Old Testament, right? He's, he's a scribe. He, he knows the Old Testament scriptures. And he's looking at Genesis chapter 22, which if you're uh, familiar with the Bible, there in Genesis 22, uh, uh, God has made previous to 22 these staggering promises to Abraham. He says, look, Abraham, I'm going to I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. Your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham is standing there with no children. And eventually God 
keeps his promise and he brings the child to Abraham and he, uh, uh, he and Sarah give birth to Isaac. And there he is and this is the child through whom the promise is to come. And then in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain and I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Now there's so much about that that makes no sense. Right? This is the one that Abraham waited on for decades. And God fulfilled his promise. He gave him an offspring through whom he would bless and multiply. And now he's saying he wanted him to take Isaac up on the mountain and offer him as a burnt offering to kill him. But you see, Abraham trusted God. He knew that some way, somehow, God would keep his promise. Even if that meant God was going to have to supernaturally and miraculously raise his son from the dead. And so he goes up fully prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And he gets on top of the mountain. And then God instead provides a ram that will be sacrificed in place of Isaac. And in response to this overwhelming, dramatic act of faith and trust in the sovereign purposes of God, God responds to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18, and says this. Again, this is God speaking. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the author of Hebrews is looking at Genesis 22 and he sees God say, by myself I have sworn. And he asks, why did God swear by himself? Why is that necessary? Right? The promises of God are sure and steadfast. The word of God is sufficient and enough. He does not lie. He is unchangeable. We're going to look at all that in a few moments. So why in the world does God need to swear by himself? And he partially answers that. And he says, look, verse 13, there is no one greater by whom he could swear. So if he's going to swear by anyone, if he's going to take an oath by anyone, that it has to be by himself because there's no greater authority to whom he can point. And so he he swears by himself that he's going to keep this promise to Abraham that through Isaac he's going to, to bring blessing to the nations. But here's what's interesting as we put all this together. Right, thinking about that event in Genesis 22 and this radical nature, the evidence of Abraham's faith, the, the fruit of his faith that led him to that obedience to take Isaac up on the mountain. And yet here the author says very little about Abraham. Right, what he says is God made a promise. He swore to keep that promise. And thus, right, that's the key word in verse 15. Thus, therefore, 
Abraham received what was promised. He obtained the promise. Why did Abraham obtain the promise according to verses 13 through 15? Because God swore by himself that he would do it. That's why. So you see, the ultimate point is when we're called to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, yes, we are to imitate them. Yes, we are to follow them in their faithfulness. But ultimately, what it is about is not the person we're following, but the God they believed in. It's about the faithfulness of God. It's about what they knew of God's character, what they knew of his faithfulness. And we are to learn from what they knew of God's faithfulness. We're to be rooted in their knowledge and their understanding of God that drove them to that kind of faithfulness. And so what the author wants us to see is what it is about God that Abraham believed in. And it is that he believed in the sure promises of God when God swore by himself that he would do exactly what he was said exactly what he said he was going to do. So you see, God has a proven track record. You can go throughout the Old Testament and see that he always keeps his promises over and over, time after time, God is faithful. And so we can look to the Old Testament saints and we can be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises like Abraham. We're going to see much more about that in Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith and all these men who ran hard, all these people who ran hard after God and trusted in him and we can follow their example. So we can be sure of God's promises because he has a proven track record where he's been faithful to men and women throughout history and we can follow in their footsteps. But not only does he have a proven track record, he has also provided us with every reason we need to trust him. And listen, I really want you to see this in verses 16 through 18. This is astonishing. Let me read for us verses 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what I want you to see here at the very beginning is the author of Hebrews answering the question that we asked a moment ago. Why did God swear by himself? Why did he do that? And he gives us the answer right there in verse 17. The reason God swore by himself is because he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. And he did that so that, verse 18, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now th think about what God is doing here for you and me. Right? Think about all the so-called gods of history, right? That man created from their own just imagination, right? The Greek gods, the Roman gods, these capricious gods who demanded obedience and uh, called on people to, to follow what they had to say. Of course, 
the true God does the very same thing. But here's what's astonishing. These, these Greek and Roman gods, right, if they told somebody to do something and if they doubted them for a moment, they didn't say, okay, well, let me try a different way to get you to believe me. But what we have here is evidence of God's patience and grace toward you and me. Right? The promise of God should be enough. Right? What God says when he says he's going to do something, that should be enough for you and me. We shouldn't question it. We shouldn't have to be convinced any more than that. When God speaks, he speaks truth. When he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. But God also knows that you and I are weak, sinful, fallen people. And we're going to struggle to believe him. And so in his grace and mercy to us, he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to make himself more convincing. Right? It almost sounds heretical to even say that. <laughs> right? That the God is willing to do what he needs to do to be more convincing to us as if he ought to have to do that. Right? As if, as if his promises to you and me are not enough. But he's willing to do it. Right? He's willing to do it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, for you and for me, he's going to pour out grace on us and he's going to do what is necessary to convince you to believe him. So in order to convince you, right, that's the only reason he's doing this is for you and me to convince us that he's going to keep his word. So in order to do that, he is willing to swear by himself because there's no one greater by whom he can swear and so he will swear an oath by the worthiness and the majesty and the glory of his own name that he will keep his promises to us. That's what God is willing to do for us, right? And he says, look, we, we do this kind of stuff. He's pointing to human examples right there in verse 16. We swear by something greater than ourselves and all our disputes and oath is final for confirmation. It's why even in the courtroom, right, when someone is taking an oath and they're being sworn in, what do they have to say? So help me God, right? You, you look it up, and even in Australia, they, they say it even a little bit more firmly, at least in one province or state of Australia, they, they say in their swearing in into parliament, I swear by Almighty God. Right? When the president takes the oath of office, at least up to this point, they typically lay their hand on the Bible, signifying they are swearing by, taking an oath by, swearing by something greater than they are. Right? Whether it's swearing by God or something else, the point is that man must reach for something greater than them when they take an oath, when they swear by something. Now here's a brief aside but it's, it's too uh, uh, incredible for me not, not, not to share this with you, okay? So um, a moment of honesty here. I was going to make a bit of a, a joke, right? I, I, uh, if you remember the old, I'm dating myself here, by the way. The old country song that became a pop song, it became popular as well, called I Swear, right? Does anybody remember that song? John Michael Montgomery back in the day and then whatever the pop boy band was, I don't remember at this point, but it was called I Swear. And that song came to my mind, right, as I'm reading about swearing. And in that song, the first line of the chorus says, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky, right? That's something greater than man. They're swearing by these great things, these, the moon and the star in the sky. And 
I was going to say something about that, but then I just, my mind started turning in knots and I got really confused. What in the world does it mean to swear by the stars? I don't even understand what that means. So I, I Googled it. What does it mean to swear by the stars? Here's what's fascinating. Because I did that, what I came upon is that in the Quran, multiple times, Allah, this false god of Islam, swears by the stars. Now, why do I bring that up? Because this false god, Allah, is somehow claiming there's something greater than him. You see, our God, the true God, the God, the true God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God of Scriptures does not swear by anything outside of himself. There is nothing greater than him. He is the sovereign, majestic, self-existing, never had a beginning, divine, sovereign ruler of the universe. There is nothing by which he can swear except swearing by himself. He would never dare swear by the stars because the stars could cease to exist at any moment he chose for them to cease to exist. So why would he swear by the stars? He rules over the stars. And so God swears by himself in order to convince you and me that he will be faithful to keep his promises. And so the author goes on to say to us, Look, he did it to be convincing to the heirs of the promise. You see that in verse 17, to, to convince the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose. So, he, so therefore he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, what are those two unchangeable things? The promises of God and the oath-taking of God. Right, those are unchangeable things. They are sure and steadfast. They are a firm foundation under our feet. They are unshakable realities. But here's what's staggering. There's so much more in this passage of God convincing us that he is worth trusting than even just those things. So, so for example, he says... Almost in passing, right? When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, like you, we can't just read over that. God has an unchanging character of his purpose. He has an unchanging purpose. God brought this universe into existence to bring ultimate glory to his name. And he's seeking to do it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as he redeems all of his people for all of eternity, right, his grand and glorious purpose is to, to gain as much glory as is possible, right, for the glory of his name through the finished work of Jesus Christ and through the redemption of his people. And he's not going to change his mind about that tomorrow. He's not going to change his mind about that a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now or a trillion years from now. 
And so we can hitch ourselves to that wagon for all eternity. It's never going to change, right? We can count everything that has been gained as rubbish. We can leave it all behind because we know God is going to keep his promises forever and into eternity because he has an unchangeable character of purpose. It will not change. An unchangeable character of purpose. He guarantees it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his oath taking and his promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Right? There's another sure and steadfast reality that we can cling to. It is impossible for God to lie. God, I'm going to say something that's going to sound heretical, so hopefully this doesn't get spiced out and put on the internet. God cannot do everything. That's what we just read. He cannot lie. It is impossible. Everything he speaks is truth. Everything he says will come to pass. Every promise he has made will be fulfilled. That's why we in this church hold the word of God in such high regard. When we say it is the word of God, that's what we mean, that it is his word, and therefore everything in it is what? True. Because he cannot lie. I mean, do you just feel how the reasons to trust him is being piled on here? His purpose is unchangeable. He's willing to swear by himself to convince you to follow him. He's made a promise to you. He cannot lie about the promises that he makes. And why has he done all of this? Why is he stooped in such a way to do this for wicked sinners like you and me? Why? Verse 18 says, So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. The reason that God has spoken all of this to us is so that we will be convinced and strongly encouraged to hold fast to him and to nothing else. To not run to our backup plan, to not go to whatever else was in our past, but instead to cling to Christ and to Christ alone. Right, essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying to us How could you not follow him? What else are you going to turn to? Right, it reminds me of what, uh, how Peter responds to Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus had some really radical words to say to those who were following him. And many of those who were following him here on earth turned away. They they said, look, we we can't go that deep. That's, That's That's a step too far. That's an ask too much. And so John chapter 6 verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples, not talking about the 12, but talking about the large groups that would follow him everywhere. And it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. And Jesus said to the 12, the 12 disciples that we're familiar with, Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go back to the other thing you may still be clinging to? 
And listen to how Peter responds. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to turn? Where would we, Jesus, have the words of eternal life? Right, that's what the author of Hebrews wants to convince us of this morning. He wants us to say with Peter, where else are we going to go? Right, instead, let us, let us hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And know that God has given us every reason to trust him. He has done all of this, including swearing by his own name, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So what is this hope that is set before us? And that brings us to our final reason why we can have confidence in the promises of God, which is, number three, Jesus is the hope that has gone before us. He is the hope, right? There in verse 18, he says, hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Well, what is that hope? Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So what is this hope? The hope is Jesus Christ. It is him. He is the hope to which we are to hold fast. And why are we to hold fast to him? Why does he become the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul? Well, it's because he has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. And here the author of Hebrews is turning to Jesus as our great high priest once more. And so I'll just remind you of this imagery that the author of Hebrews is pulling from is, is Old Testament sacrificial system temple imagery. That there in the temple there was the Holy of Holies that represented the presence of God. And it was behind the curtain and no one could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and even he only once a year. But here it says, Jesus. Jesus is now our great high priest, and he has gone into the inner place. He has gone behind the curtain. <clears throat> and here's what is glorious about this. Jesus has gone, verse 20 says, as a forerunner on our behalf. What is a forerunner? It is someone who has gone before us. He has gone there before we have, which means there will be a time when we get to go as well. And what is it that happened when Jesus died on the cross? What happened to that curtain that divided us from being able to enter into the Holy of Holies? That physical curtain that stood in the temple, that actual physical curtain that kept man from entering into the Holy Holies when Jesus died on the cross was ripped in two. And the Bible specifically says it happened from top to bottom to prove that there was no guy standing at the bottom ripping it open. No, it was a divine act of God that tore the curtain in two because Jesus went ahead of us as a forerunner on our behalf 
so that we, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, could enter into the Holy of Holies, meaning that we get to enter into the presence of God himself. That which we can never enter into in our own righteousness, by our own efforts, by our own works. But Jesus has gone before us. Therefore, we have access to the Father. And how is it that Jesus was able to do this? Well, this brings us full circle to where we started at the end of chapter 5. The reason Jesus was able to do this is because he became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus took on flesh. He became a man. He came and dwelt among us so that he could serve as a high priest in our place. Even though Jesus was not from the line of Aaron, he was not from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah. So how in the world can Jesus be our great high priest when he's not even qualified by biblical standards to be a high priest? How is that possible? And that's the whole argument that the author of Hebrews is making. He, he's saying he's a different kind of priest, but he still has the authority to be a priest based on the authority of God's word because there's this guy, Melchizedek, who pops up out of nowhere in Genesis and he's a priest. And Jesus is in his line of priests, even though he's from the tribe of Judah, the promised son of David. It is this that the author of Hebrews mentioned at the end of chapter 5. And then he had a pause and he had to say to the Hebrews, I don't think you're quite ready for this. Let's take a break. Let's, let's be sure you're ready to dive into this deep theology of Melchizedek and Jesus being our great high priest and how all of this matters. And so now beginning in a couple of weeks when we get back into Hebrews, beginning in chapter 7 for the next, uh, for the next chapter, chapter 7, 8, 9, and even into 10, it's going to be all about how it is that Jesus is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why do I bring that up? It's because I want you to realize that this is why theology is so important. And it's something that, by God's grace, we are not going to shy away from in this church. Right? We're, we're, theology is life-giving. Right? There, there's no other way to read this passage and to come to the end of it and think, you know, I don't really need to study God's word. I don't need to know the deep things of theology. No, God is telling us the exact opposite of that. He's saying, look, if you're going to hold fast, if you're going to hold fast to the hope that is set before you, if you're going to keep your grip on Jesus, if you're going to be convinced by God swearing by himself to keep following him, even when there's going to be temptations and suffering and trials and persecution and tribulation, even when all of those things come in your life, what is it that's going to keep you holding on to Jesus? What is it that's going to keep your grip on him? Understanding things like Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you may be thinking, yeah, when I'm suffering, I'm not going to think about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But I'm telling you, these kinds of truths 
put a unshakable foundation under your feet so that when those days come, you'll be ready. So that when the trials come, you can remember, God, I'm struggling right now. I can't see the path forward. I'm not trusting your promises. It all seems cloudy. It's getting difficult. And you can recall the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. You can recall that God is unchangeable in his purpose. You can recall that he has swore by his own name to keep his promises. You can recall that he is a promise-keeping God. You can remember that he is a God who does not lie. And you can remember that Jesus went before you as your great high priest. And the reason he could is because he was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And therefore, he entered into the Holy of Holies on your behalf. And therefore, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that stands in your place. Therefore, you have forgiveness through his finished work on the cross and therefore you will one day be raised to your glorious new bodies to dwell with God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth and you will keep hanging on to Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to convince us of this morning. And what an act of grace of God that he is willing to stoop down to us and say, look, I know you're struggling with doubt. Let me do a little more to convince you I'm worth trusting. He's worth trusting. So by God's grace, let's plead that he would make us a people of faith that would follow him and that we would imitate those who have gone before us. So I'm going to pray for us now and we will transition to a time of turning our attention to the Lord's Supper, to communion, and what a glorious privilege it is to be able to conclude a sermon like this Right, gathering around the Lord's table together, being reminded of our great high priest who went before us, who allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled. And even as we will look in a moment at 1 Corinthians 11, that it is a privilege through the Lord's table to proclaim his death until he comes. So let me pray for us to prepare our hearts and our minds. Then we will read 1 Corinthians 11 and then partake of the Lord's table together. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace to us through the truth of your word. Father, we're thankful for your mercy and your patience and your long-suffering and your willingness to even do what is necessary to convince us that you are trustworthy. Father, how unnecessary that should be. But I'm so thankful that you have not given up on us, that you're willing to, to do what's necessary to convince the heirs of the promise to trust you. And so, Father, I pray that the pastors this morning would provide strong encouragement for each of us to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, that we will hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our great high priest who has gone before us. And so, Father, even as we partake of this physical symbol of the death of Jesus Christ, I pray that it would strengthen our faith, that we would be reminded of what Christ has accomplished in our place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.